You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, Molly, let's uh, check out this new Balinese restaurant. I can use some nasty balmy with oxtail soup. Ooh, not to mention spicy chicken gizzard. And they have both. And I have the directions that my girlfriend gave me. Yeah, what do they say? Well, you go down this road until you see the palm tree. Then you do this loopy thing around it. Turn left at the green tile store. Wait, and when you wait, see Molly, that long what, what do you mean? Stretch, what kind of directions are those? A loopy thing. What, what is that? Well, that's when you walk around a tree like this. You t- kind of walk like this, and then you turn around. Yeah. Well, it's just lucky I printed out this map. That's all I can say. Oh, I suppose it's an east-west approach? Well, it is. I mean, research has shown that men rely on cardinal directions, you know, northeast, south, whatever, using a compass. Ever heard of that? But women use visual cues like palm trees and loopy things. <laughs> well, we get to where we're going. At any rate, we go south for three-quarters of a kilometer, and then we go northeast. <laughs> Gosh, I was hoping we could eat today. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak, and we're finding our way on Big Picture Science, our way to this Balinese restaurant. And along the way, we'll discover our place in space and time in the grandest map of them all, the cosmos. Come on, let's walk. I think the palm tree thing is unfair, Seth, because look down the road. You can see it right there. Yeah, down there means south. When one describes location, it's always in relationship to something else. Yeah, and why is there a palm tree here in northern California? Well, I'll give you that, Molly. There's no absolute location in space. I mean, we learned that from Einstein. It's always this place is X miles from that place in this direction. Such as X miles from a palm tree or a tile store. Well, yeah, but no, because we're also about 4,000 miles from the center of the Earth. But that's just not terribly useful for navigation. You need some worldwide agreed-upon standard, some reference, because if you say you're at latitude 20 degrees north, then at least you know you're 1,200 nautical miles from the equator. How many nautical miles are we from the restaurant? We turn northeast here, and then since the sun is over there... Well, as we make our way to lunch, we can ponder how other animals navigate. Right, and there are new insights into the decision-making process of rats. First, consider what sort of decisions a rat faces daily. Uh, Should I go for the cheddar or the gruyere? The rotten tomato looks good. Because food motivates rodents, scientists use it to get rats to run mazes so they can study how the animals navigate. Because, after all, they don't make tiny rat maps. Okay, this says go straight four inches, then turn right, then go three inches and turn left. Left again at the T-junction? How about a landmark, people? Neuroscientist David Reddish has discovered how the rats play back images of the maze as they wind their way to the end. And remember, rat brains aren't so different from our own. Dr. Reddish has observed this rat race on the scale of the brain cell. We're actually recording from their brains. We're actually, there are, the cells in the brain are, of course, called neurons, and these neurons They communicate information by firing little, what we call action potentials, or what we like to call spikes, which are little electrical blips. Okay, so you've got these rats wired up. Doesn't that sort of impede their ability to go through a maze? I mean, how do you do that? I have to say, we do the surgeries under general anesthesia, and the rats were very careful about analgesia to make sure that the rats are not in pain at any time. That's actually something that's very important to us because, of course, a stressed-out animal, including stressed-out humans, don't make the same decisions. And we're not interested in studying stress decisions. We're interested in studying, you know, normal decisions. But the rats run just as fast on these mazes with these devices as without. Trust me. I mean, I've chased them around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you say these devices. These are, what, little tinfoil hats with some electronics in them that are... Essentially. They're little micro-machined devices, very, very small. And we implant wires that are finer than a human hair into the brains. And that's actually what we're listening to. So, I mean, remember that a neuron is an electrical signal. And so that means that a wire can listen to that neuron. And from that neuron, we can actually determine the information that the neuron is sending. 
Okay, so what you're interested in is how these rats navigate, how they figure out where they've been, where they need to go to find the cheese or whatever it is that's at the end of the maze, right? Well, what we're actually interested in, interestingly enough, is actually decision-making because and navigation is a particularly good example of decision-making. And so what we're actually making our rats do is make decisions on these mazes. They, have to, they come to what we call a choice point, and they have to either go, say, left to get food or right to get food, and if they make the correct choice, then they keep going. Because I think this is really kind of the key point, is that the cells in the hippocampus encode location by firing at a specific location on the maze. So one cell, we call these the place fields of these cells. So one cell fires when the rat's sight at the northwest corner, and another cell will fire when the rat's at the northeast corner. And what that means is that we could if we listen to those cells, and we know which cells are which, so cell 26 is firing at the northwest corner and cell 30 is firing at the northeast corner, I can close my eyes and tell you where the rat is just by listening to those two cells. My goodness, that, that's quite interesting. Now, one of the things that you've learned from this research, David, apparently, is that the rats play back their experiences in their brains. I, I, I don't know if they do that when they're sleeping or what, but, you know, they, they seem to, to think about this maze, and rather amazing, they uh, think about the parts of the maze that they've experienced the least when they play them back in their brains. What's the significance of that? Because if you are, for example, I'm in my office, if I'm thinking about the kitchen at my house, there's a part of my brain that is representing being at the kitchen in my house. And a part of my brain says, okay, I know what it's like to stand in front of the stove, you know, cooking at my kitchen. And those cells, if we were recording from those cells, they wouldn't appear to match the office, they'd appear to match the kitchen. And so when we record from a rat running on a maze, we can say, okay, most of the time these cells are representing where he is, but occasionally what we see are representations that are not consistent with where he is, but other places that he's been in the environment. However, what we found is that not only do they, quote, replay, unquote, what they've recently experienced, but they can actually play sequences of positions that they've never experienced. So they're doing this, why? Are they just trying to learn how to deal with a, with a new maze? I mean, are, are they just trying to fortify themselves against novel experience? Or, or why are they doing that? Maybe they're just obsessing about the maze. Well, we don't know why they're doing it. What we do know is that these replayed sequences are related to learning. So what the example I like to give is that actually from our data, what we've seen is shortcuts, that is, Imagine going from your car to your office, your office to the library. You should be able to get from the library back to your car without having to go back by your office. You can cut that corner. And what we found is that the rats, while they were sitting off and resting, what they would do is show these sequences that match shortcuts, almost as if what they were doing was allowing their mind to wander and make new connections, although, of course, you know, all, all I know is that they're actually, the hippocampus is replaying, is playing out these sequences. Well, I don't know how much I have in common with a rat, although there are people who <laughs> would probably like to elaborate on that. But do you think that this uh, set of experiments has true application to our brains, to Homo sapiens brains? Absolutely. So we know that there is a hippocampus in human brains, and in fact, people do actually have recordings particularly for clinical reasons. So there are clinical electrodes that can be placed in epileptic patients, and those patients also show place fields. They're actually navigating in virtual environments. The other thing, however, is we know that the hippocampus is necessary for imagination. That is, if I'm going to imagine the future and I say, well, you know, what would happen if? That part of my brain, I need the hippocampus for that. That kind of future imagining of the world is hippocampally dependent. So what we think we're seeing with the rats are exactly that kind of what would happen if kind of imaginings. Do you, do you have any insight into how they view navigation? I mean, there seems to be even differences amongst humans. Men apparently navigate more by vectors. That's the way I think of things. I think of, you know, I, I sort of have a, a vector map in my mind if I have to go someplace I've never been to before. I, you know, check it out on a map or something. And apparently women tend to use landmarks more often. How do the rats do it? Do they have a sort of a picture of these things in their minds, or, or is there any way to know? 
There are. And in fact, rats have multiple, just like humans, have multiple decision systems. And the decision systems tend to track very nicely the kinds of decision systems that humans have as well. So for example, when rats are first learning a maze, when they're first experiencing and they're coming to difficult kind of choices where they're not really sure what to do, they'll stop and they'll pause as if they're deliberating over the two choices. And in fact, when the rat comes to this choice point and pauses to look back and forth, again, looking like he's deliberating, the hippocampus sweeps ahead of the animal. The representation of these place fields fire ahead of the animal, almost as if the animal were saying, well, what would happen if I went left? What would happen if I went right? With experience, that goes away, and the rat becomes stereotyped. He automates his behavior, and he just runs right through the choice. And the example I always like to give is imagine the first time you drove to, your, to work, right? The first time you drove to work, you were paying attention to the world, right? But you do it every day for weeks and months and years, and what you find is you do it, you don't have to pay attention to it. You can think about other things. And we see that same kind of a transition in rats between these two decision systems. And the brain structures in rats that match these two decision systems tend to match, look like they match the structures in humans as well. Well, then finally, I have to ask you then, do you often get lost? Um, sometimes. I often, I've been known to uh, automate my behavior too quickly and drive my friend to my office instead of to the airport. Does that count? <laughs> well, no, yeah, it does count. I do the same thing. <laughs> well, David Reddish, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. David Reddish is a neuroscientist at the University of Minnesota. You know what we need? GPS. No, no, no. There's much too reliance on computers as it is, don't you think? I mean, even all the local cab drivers using it, including this guy who gave me a ride this morning. So I'm in a cab right now, and the GPS is on. Now, do you use GPS often? Sometimes, yes. Are you going to put in the GPS or the address of where we're going now? Yeah. While you drive? Yeah, I can do that. You can pull over if you want to and just yeah, put the address in just to be safe, because you're also talking to me, so there's lots of distractions. Yeah. So this is one of those GPSs that talks to you? Yeah. Turn left at the next street. Are you worried that people are becoming too dependent on, on machines and not using their brains? Yeah, that's right. People are dependent on the GPS and computers, most of them. Does that include you? I don't have to use that one. Okay, so you could do this You could do this trip without that GPS? Yes, I can do that. Terrific. Maybe I should buckle up instead of leaning into the front seat. Well, that's the world as it is today, Molly. Maps are changing. It used to be that maps showed a God's eye view. But now digital maps are all about me, me, me. We've suddenly moved to the capability of being able to center maps on yourself, and it changes our whole perspective on life and the world around us. It's Found in Space on Big Picture Science. Usually when we talk to you about Team SETI, we approach it in a circuitous manner, winding around in a curiously indirect fashion, employing devices such as skits and absurd storytelling in our drunken zigzag, random walk path toward the point, the nut, the take-home message, if you will, of why one should join Team SETI, a message conveyance scheme that is not unlike that of carrier pigeons who during the war flew hundreds of miles with notes rolled in tiny capsules secured to their legs and who sometimes even carried maps and photographic... Seth, Seth I've yeah. been listening to you and what you're saying is just delightful, but you seem to have lost your train of thought. Oh, right. Should I say more about how the birds were trained? No, I don't think so. Well, what about the seasonal weather patterns over continental Europe? No. Or how to grow organic kiwis? Maybe another time. Let's say this, that joining Team SETI supports scientific research. It's easy to do at SETI.org, and it will net you a photograph of the staff if you follow up with an email to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. It's a little long-winded, don't you think? Find yourself at SETI.org and Big Picture Science at SETI.org. Hey, can we get an editor in here? Jeez.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. Molly and I are navigating our way to a new restaurant using two different approaches. Okay, so you just cross past the eucalyptus tree. Yeah, and, and only one of those you... approaches is specific enough to get us there. <laughs> I mean, if you mean turn northeast, Molly, yeah, let's do that, but only for 30 yards. Well, satellites and the global positioning system, the GPS, they'll tell you where you are to within only a few feet. Getting lost, it's a thing of the past. And if you think about it, a hundred years ago, you know, the Norwegians and the British were fighting their way to the South Pole, but they had to walk in a big circle when they got there to be sure they had really gotten there. I mean, their instruments were precise to maybe, I don't know, about a half a mile. And 200 years ago, Lewis and Clark, I doubt that they knew where they were to within even 10 miles most of the time. And it's not just precision. Geographer Mike Goodchild points out that you can use today's digital map making to create your own version of reality. It's kind of anti-Copernican, isn't it? The world now does revolve around us. It's personalized, it's subjective, it is a very different view of the world, which is which allows, particularly allows perspectives to vary. So instead of there being one view, um, which has often in the past been the view of authority or, or the view of those in power, now the view of anyone. I've seen the term neo-geography, which of course is just a lot of Greek to say new geography, really. Is that what this is? Because when I looked this up on Wikipedia, the neo-geography entry had been removed, and I thought, well, maybe there's some controversy about this term. Ah, um, I think not. I think probably it was because it's what Wikipedia thinks of as a neologism, um, a new word that doesn't necessarily have any history and so doesn't belong in an encyclopedia. I think that's probably behind this. Uh, I think it's a very useful word because it talks to the fact that everyone today can be to some extent a geographer. Anyone can make a map. Map making has become so simple, so cheap, that it's possible to make map of virtually anything and to make maps which are personal. So to show the world as I perceive it was something that the U.S. Geological Survey, for example, in the past could never pay any attention to, could never afford to. The U.S. Geological Survey is being supplanted by uh, individual geological surveys. Can you give me an example of of how this sort of personal map-making might take place? Yeah, well, one way to ask it is if if the individual is empowered to make a map of anything, then it's very interesting to see what individuals choose to make maps of because it's typically what not what we've had maps of in the past. So it's not the streets. It's not the uh, official buildings. Things like things that are important to the person, like which streets are well lit at night might be important if you had to make your way home at night if you were single. Where is the graffiti? Where, is the, uh, where are the potholes in my street? These are things that people, I think, are interested in and are now empowered to make maps of. Can, can you give me a concrete example of somebody who's done this and how they did it? Yeah, well, we've, uh, we do this with our students as, as way of in, in getting them engaged in, in this sort of stuff. So we work in the local neighborhood, and we let them make maps essentially of anything, and they come up with some striking examples. A lot of them are very transient. They're things like, where's the party tonight? Uh, let's make a map of that. Do, do, do they begin with a base map, I guess is what yeah. I'm asking. Yeah, all this relies on, on two things. You, you have to have a base map to start with, and of course Google and Microsoft and everybody else have been very helpful in providing. And you also have to know where you are. And these days with a um, smartphone, you basically have that capability. Okay, so they go around, uh, they, they, they see some graffiti, they're making maps of the graffiti in their neighborhood for who knows whatever reason. Maybe they're into art, I don't know. And so they, 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 they walk up to a wall that's got graffiti on it, they got their smartphone, what do they do? Sometimes take a picture and associate that picture with the location and upload it into something like Flickr, um, which lets you do that. It lets you georeference photographs. And, and could someone else then, say, go on to Google Maps, for example, and then find little, you know, little flags where all this graffiti is? Can yeah, they... yeah and, and some very, very interesting examples that people have come up with. People mapping heritage in their neighborhood. 
people mapping where all the free sources of food, for example, in the form of, of trees bearing fruit and what time of year they bear the fruit. This sounds like an unalloyed good, Mike. I mean, everybody can make a map of whatever it is that yep. interests them. They can map their neighborhoods where all the, the, the bike racks, what, whatever. Okay, I used to make maps as a kid of where all the sidewalks were in my neighborhood because I would bicycle around them. Yeah. So I made my own maps of this. And now you can do it with the technology. I mean, it's obviously much better. But on the other hand, you know, there was a time, and it wasn't so long ago, when there were big empty spaces on the maps of the world. And those were both mysterious and, and romantic in a sense. There, there might really be such a place as King Kong Island or whatever in the South Pacific that somehow the map makers had missed. Are, are we giving up something by being so well mapped? Um, yeah, I think to some extent that this raises a lot of interesting questions. Um, there are some really interesting sites on the web where people create fantasy spaces and, and things like Second Life, of course, do that. And so it's interesting to see what people imagine uh, worlds might be like. There are also some pretty profound ethical questions associated with privacy. Um, what is it okay for me to map? And particularly, what's it okay to, for me to map about you? Um, and some of these show up in um, some pretty controversial incidents that have occurred recently. Could you give me an example of that? Yeah, well, in, at the international level, if you're putting up a map of the world, um, you might think that that's a no-brainer. The boundaries are all there. All I've got to do is put those boundaries on the map. Uh, in fact, of course, a lot of those boundaries are very disputed. And so Google got into hot water because in China, the Google site, which is google.cn, has by Chinese law to show the world according to Chinese policy. Mm. And the same is true in India, but of course the two policies conflict. And what we see is a third version. So there are now three maps of where the boundaries are in the Himalayas. And Google unfortunately put up the wrong map on the wrong site and created a bit of a storm of diplomatic interest. I'd like to go back to a situation that uh, I was reading about recently which uh, they were describing the British effort to map the Northwest Passage or really define the Northwest Passage at the beginning of the 19th century. Really, you know, it was 150, 170 years ago. And, you know, they're sending these ships into the Canadian Arctic and they're trying to find a way, you know, over to Alaska, really, across the top of Canada. And they have maps, but the, the maps they have are enormously incomplete. Yeah. So they're nosing around in the ice and, and in, the, in the distance they think they see an island, but they don't know if it's an island or a peninsula or what. And, you know, this was terrible work. I mean, <laughs> people died and whatever. But on the other hand, there was real romance about this. And I just feel, you know, two ways about this. On the one hand, I'm glad to live in an era where I can just go onto Google Earth or whatever and, and find railroads in places I'll never visit and so forth. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm missing that sense of adventure going someplace that's never been seen before. That's you know, there aren't too many blank spaces. And uh, once again, I, I just, is there something gone? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have a personal view on this because I've done a lot of uh, cave exploring or spelunking. And there's a big difference there, of course, between entering a passage which no human has ever entered before versus entering a passage which is well known. But at the same time, I think if you bring this down to the personal level, personal exploration can still be a matter of re-exploring places that are already known. It has a lot of the mystery that the original explorers would have felt, even though somebody has been there before. So if I go down a cave passage, I don't have a good map because it's very difficult to map cave passages. They're so complicated. And I still feel a sense of being an original explorer because I've never been there before. My understanding is that map making in earnest really began not too many centuries ago when they began to map Holland by dividing it up into into triangles. Uh, they were able to do this in Holland, as I recall, because, of course, Holland's very flat. You can see from one village to the next, at least if you go up to the local church spire. And there was always a church in the next village, so you could sort of, you know, measure the angles to all these church spires and then, you know, triangulate Holland. And they got some pretty good maps of Holland very early on. It, it, this was quite an enterprise. Today, of course, we have satellite photos and so forth. It's pretty easy to map, you know, the general outlines of any place. Where is this going? Uh, what, what are the maps of 100 years from now going to look like? That's a very interesting question because this digital world that we're creating uh, essentially is a world that at the moment we have no technology for preserving infinitely. So it's entirely possible that if you were to come back in 2050, 
and ask what was the state of the world or what was the state of the United States at previous times, we would be able to give you a better answer to that with reference to 1960 than to 2010, because our 1960 maps will still be there on paper and we will still have them, whereas it's not at all clear that the digital data we're creating now will still be around in 2050. Is this going to obviate the need for, you know, governmental mapping agencies? Have they sort of done their job? I mean, is the U.S. No, I, I, well, I think um, there's always new stuff to map, and there's always stuff at greater detail. So if you compare the maps we're making now with the maps we made even 20 years ago, Today's maps are much more accurate and much more detailed. And, of course, that opens up new applications. So if you tried to do the kinds of things that people now do with smartphones and maps using 1960s maps, you'd have a hard time because the 1960s maps weren't accurate enough. We've moved to more accurate mapping, and that's kept a lot of the map-making enterprise going. I think government mapping agencies, though, are, are, in, uh, are indeed in serious trouble, partly because this field has expanded so much that it's now dominated by the private sector. So Google, Microsoft, and the older mapping agent, mapping companies like Rand McNally are now the source of the primary sources of maps, whereas in the past, of course, we've relied on government. Mike, I can foresee a development that maybe is terribly obvious. I mean, when you think of how we're mapping Mars, you know, we keep sending more and more spacecraft to orbit Mars to map it, and, you know, the spacecraft that we have today will be able to see smaller detail, you know, more detail, I should say, than, than the satellite we had three or four years ago. So, presumably, that will continue here on Earth. Google already has the ability to for you to drop down into downtown Chicago, whatever it is, and see these 3D polygonal models of the right. buildings down there. They're not perfect. They don't get all the detail in the Corinthian columns quite right, but they're pretty good. And I can imagine that the ultimate would be, indeed, for you to have a 3D model of everything on the surface of the Earth down to, you know, a fraction of a meter yeah. detail. And that might not be very far away. And after that, I sort of wonder, you know, then it's just annotation. Yeah, well, that, that is a big revolution which is coming, which is taking all this stuff indoors. We spend, uh, in fact, the, the figure is about 80, 87% for Americans. We spend 87% of our lives indoors. And all this mapping technology we've been talking about is essentially outdoor technology. So what are we doing about the 87%? What are we doing about the person who needs to find his or her way through a complex shopping center like the um, Great American Shopping Center? And this is an area which has, I think, huge commercial potential, and we're bound to see a lot of development in. It's also the area that future wars are going to be fought in. We're going to fight future wars in urban areas where we have to deal with complex three-dimensional structures. So mapping for the military is not so much these days about whether you can draw, drive a tank across a given landscape, but how you can find your way through the streets of a complicated um, town. I have to say the suggestion that we should be mapping the interiors of buildings. I mean, it's somewhat disquieting. I, I can see the, the, the Google car coming into my living room and 360-degree <laughs> photos. Mike, I'm a big fan of maps. I've got a closet full of maps. I just love maps, and I don't have a GPS. But I notice that if I get in a cab these days, even if I'm going half a mile, the guy will turn on his GPS on the one hand, maybe that saves me from having him drive all around the city and charging me an enormous fare. But on the other hand, does this mean that nobody knows how to get around anymore unless they've got this machine? Yeah, this is a real danger. And I think it's very similar to, the, uh, to what's happened with hand calculators or with spell checkers, where they tend eventually to lead to a loss of those kinds of skills. So people aren't good at mental arithmetic anymore because they, they can always use a hand calculator. I think the same thing happens with maps. So people who use GPS are typically not as adept at remembering how they got to a place. Um, they don't have the mental maps they used to. Um, there's evidence that, that and, and particularly this comes out of uh, London, where in order to qualify for a cab license, you have to demonstrate a knowledge of every street in the city. And in the past, that led to this appears to be well-documented, um, significant changes in the brain, um, particularly with the hippocampus, which tends to expand in order to, to deal with the great demands on, on spatial memory. So the question is whether the reverse will happen as cab drivers convert to GPS. Yeah, I, this is a very major uh, issue. I, I personally always use keep my GPS as a map so that and it always has nor, uh, north up instead of heads up. And I find that encourages me to use my brain a lot more in navigating uh, with my car. 
I, I, yeah, I have to say personally, when people, you know, join me in the car, I'm driving them somewhere, and they come with the, the Google instructions. I, I always, you know, I say, put those away. If you'd printed out a map, yeah, that's okay, but not instructions, because if I make one mistake in the instructions, now I'm lost. Yeah. Whereas with a map, you can always recover. Yeah, yeah. Do do, do uh, explorers, people who hike in the mountains or, uh, you know, the wilds of whatever continent they're hiking in, do they all take GPS now with them or not? No. And I think they realize that GPS is actually not very helpful. I mean, it tells you exactly where you are in latitude and longitude, but it doesn't tell you where you are in relation to anything that would be important to you. So it's not a complete solution to the problem of getting lost. Um, And back to caves again, I I think in, in cave environments, for example, you have no GPS. And so you have to rely entirely on your, your mind and its ability to keep track of a, a very complex three-dimensional space. The same applies to some extent out in, in the hiking world as well. So, uh, Mike, finally, do you ever get lost? I was asked that in a questionnaire recently, and I said, no, <laughs> I can't recall ever having gotten lost. <laughs> All right. Mike Goodchild, thanks so much for talking with sure, us today. Thank you. Mike Goodchild is a geographer at 34 degrees, 26 minutes north, 119 degrees, 50 minutes west. Otherwise known as Santa Barbara. He's at the University of California there. You know, Molly, I feel kind of sorry that the great era of exploration is somewhat behind us. But do you ever wonder what would have happened if the world of Westward Ho had collided with the digital decade? Yeah, that would have been difficult for the history books, but still... Well, William, the supplies are lined at the river. I secured extra tobacco for Indian trading and herbal remedies for gastro distress. Well, hang on a moment, Merriweather. A transcontinental crossing is perilous, of course. We'll be fortunate to make it back to the Mississippi with all our men. But I'm confident in President Jefferson's vision of a water-level route to the Pacific. Attention, men, with the Lewis and Clark Corps discovery. That's right, Merriweather. Let's try ShoshoneMaps.com. Line up at the Missouri River. First group, grab rifle flints and mosquito netting. William, I trust you have a surveyor's compass along with the quadrant. What are you doing there? With these modern instruments, we will do what no man in a coonskin cap has ever done before, crossing the vast expanse of a continent. Uh, Indeed. Extraordinary. There's a map. Map indeed. That we will. The first to delineate the courses of the Missouri and Columbia rivers. Second group with the boxes of face paint, corn cakes, and whiskey. Line up by the canoes. The Missouri River? All of it? We shall navigate turbulent waters, hike untamed wilderness, and battle hostile natives. Of course, if necessary, I suppose we can always ask the locals if they know anything useful about the area. But no, we're really on our own. Pioneering pathfinding and nature red in tooth and claw. Oh, William, don't forget to wind the chronometer. Yes, got it. I rather did it. But if we keep the biscuits and flowers... What happens if I hit Zoom? Look, if we take this valley north, we cross something called the Bitterroot Range and and avoid the Wall of the Rockies. That's brilliant. Assemble, soldiers and men. Are you ready, William? Tis time. Hit print. Yes, Merriweather, I have just what we need to get our way to the coast. I feel confident, William, of our success. Oh, let me grab my flintlock. I too, Merriweather. Oh, hang on. Seems to be out of toner. Just shake this thing. We'll need a bit of luck, of course. Oh, I think we'll have that. Just put this in my pocket here. I have no doubt we'll be on the shores of the Pacific in no time. And in the history books. Cora Discovery, I want to say on this historic day, I am certain of your success in traversing a vast and unknown continent. Coming up, as Seth and I track down this Balinese restaurant, which has deep-fried tripe and spicy egg, finding it is really nothing compared to pinpointing our location in the solar system or the galaxy. Find out what it means to say you are here in the universe. It's found in space on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. 
New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready, or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts. We're navigating our way through big picture science. Let's cross the street here. And go east. Finally, directions I can understand, compass headings. Hey, despite what research says, Seth, women can use compass directions too. But now we're nearing... The telescope store. Hey, that's a visual cue. Yeah, but everybody knows where it is. Okay, 40 yards, turn to the north and we're there. You know, we heard how modern maps have us in the center of it all. And that's kind of counter to what Copernicus said back in the days when most people thought Earth was the center of the universe. But now we know better. We orbit the sun. Nick Copernicus moved the center of the universe to the sun indeed. And it really was the center of the universe because, you know, back then the universe was the solar system. The stars, they were just a backdrop for the planets. You know, they were assumed to all be at the same distances. There was no space out in space, but now we know differently. We know just where we are in the solar system and roughly where we are in this big, flat Milky Way galaxy surrounded by 200 billion other galaxies, we can map space. And thanks to these efforts, according to MIT astronomer Josh Wynn, today it's hard to be lost in space. Figuring out where the Earth is and putting it into context has really been the preoccupation of astronomy since the very beginning trying to figure out how big the Earth is, how far away are the planets and the sun, and what is the role of the solar system in the whole galaxy. You mentioned the size of the Earth. How does the size of the Earth play into calculating where it is? Figuring out the size of the solar system was was a big problem for hundreds of years. And one key development was using parallax, using the fact that if you're in different places on the Earth, viewing the same celestial event, then those different people will see slightly different things because they have different perspective on the event. For example, two people in the same theater watching the same show on a stage might have their view blocked by a post somewhere in the theater. But each of those people will see the post blocking a different part of the show. And by working out the geometry of where they are and where the post must be, they could figure out exactly where that post is. So the idea is that if I'm in California and you are in Massachusetts, as you are, and we're both looking at the same event out in space, that helps us approximate distance? That's right, because you'll both be seeing the event from slightly different perspectives. Isn't it one thing to do that with planets, which you can see in your telescope, and maybe you can even see the the varying size, for example, of maybe the moon or Jupiter if you have a proper telescope? But when you look at the stars, the stars all look like tiny dots of light at the same brightness. Of course, they're not. But how do we figure out where we are in relationship to the stars? Finding the distances to stars and galaxies has been historically the hardest problem in astronomy. Here, too, though, parallax was the trick. The idea is that instead of being on different parts of the Earth viewing the same celestial event, We use the fact that the Earth goes around the sun so that at one time of year, the Earth is looking at a star from a certain location. But then six months later, the Earth is on the other side of the sun. That star will look like it's in a slightly different location compared to even more distant stars in the background. So how far away are the stars? They're not all the same distance, but what distances are we talking about? The nearest stars are a few light years away. That is, it takes light a few years to get to the Earth from those stars. And we can measure the distances to stars out to about a thousand light years, or maybe a little bit more. The galaxy, though, is much bigger than a neighborhood of just a thousand light years. The galaxy is tens of thousands of light years across. When you see those maps of the galaxy, they always show us on one arm of the Milky Way galaxy, right? We're not in the center. We're sort of on one of the one of the arms of this spiral galaxy. How do we know that that's where we are? Because you certainly can't take a picture from outside the galaxy looking in. That's right. For the Milky Way specifically, one big breakthrough was that the Milky Way, in addition to having a lot of stars, also has a lot of hydrogen, hydrogen gas floating around in space. And hydrogen is usually invisible, 
but it does have this one very convenient property that it emits radio waves at a very specific radio frequency. So when astronomers began using radio telescopes and realized that hydrogen sings at this particular frequency, they began to map the galaxy by using those signals from hydrogen clouds. Josh, does it make any sense to talk about where we are in the universe? And when we talk about our place in the universe, time and distance are interchangeable because we're talking about how far back we can see and where our position is in terms of the beginning of the universe. But how can we describe where we are in the universe when the universe doesn't have a center? So the solar system does have a center, the sun. And so we can make a map of the solar system and say that we are so many miles off center. Likewise, the galaxy, our Milky Way, has a very well-defined center. There's a big, bright source of radiation right in the middle and spiral arms going around it. So we can say that we are some tens of thousands of light years away from the center of the Milky Way. When you go to even larger scales, if you zoom out even further, you see that at some point, the universe just looks completely boring. You just have one section of the universe looking exactly like any other. There's just loads of galaxies every which way that form apparently random patterns, and it becomes a kind of static of galaxies. Josh, do you ever find it mind-boggling or disorienting to think about yourself in this way in, in position of the universe? I mean, as, as an astronomer, you have all these tools, but as you said, as you get to a certain scale, we really can't place ourselves with any precision. That's really one of the fun things about astronomy is it gives you a kind of ultimate perspective on things. You can just keep zooming out and zooming out and zooming out and imagining our own little solar system shrinking into insignificance, our own galaxy shrinking to become just one of many in this larger structure. So it, it does give you a, a sense of vertigo sometimes to mentally go through that zooming out, but it also makes it part of the fun. Josh Wynn, thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure. Josh Wynn knows right where he is at MIT, where he practices astronomy. As humans, we have a place in the universe, not only in space, but in time. As in, it's 1.40 p.m. and time for lunch. <laughs> yes, but even on a grander scale than that, it seems that the timing is just right for us here and now. Charles Dickens got it half right. It's the best of times. And what time are we talking about? Well, the universe is about 13.5 billion years old. But how do we know this, astrophysicist Mario Livio? We know this uh, from several lines of evidence. We have, first of all, found the ages of uh, very old clusters of stars. We have determined the rate of expansion of the universe, which if you kind of run backwards, you know, like rewinding a DVD, then, uh, you know, we can sort of find out when those things started. And we know it from measurements of this uh, background radiation, which we call the cosmic microwave background, uh, which allows us to... Uh, place limits on a number of cosmological parameters, including the age of the universe. All right. So the universe turns out to be about three times as old as the Earth. And I have to say, you know, on, on a rare moment when I'm just thinking about things, that really strikes me because, you know, I ask myself, why isn't the universe a thousand times older than our planet or, or maybe a million or a billion times more? It seems that we're kind of among the first out of the starting gate. Yeah, maybe not quite the first, but you, you're right. I mean, we're certainly not the very last out of the starting gate. I mean, the thing is, you see, we are carbon-based life, and the universe did not start by having carbon in it. Carbon formed in the cores of stars, like the sun and others. So the universe had to actually achieve a certain age before there was enough carbon, if you like, in the universe to start life in abundance. It's hard to believe that we are the only ones out there. So you would expect that uh, life started after maybe the universe reached some sort of a peak in terms of its carbon production. Is there any reason why we couldn't have appeared very much later? There is only some reason in, in the following sense. I mean, our universe at the moment 
is already on the decline phase in terms of the rate in which it is forming new stars. And planetary systems form around young stars. Our universe was forming stars at a much higher rate, you know, maybe a factor 10 higher about 7 or 8 billion years ago. And it is already declining because the gas in galaxies from which, you know, these stars are formed has been consumed. So at some point, the universe will basically stop forming new stars. Uh, And at that point, probably planetary systems would not form either. So we're on the downhill slope. But here's another coincidence in time that seems either lucky or maybe scary. It seems that it took evolution on this planet about 4 billion years to go from the first life forms to us, to thinking music-loving homo sapiens. But the sun is already halfway through its lifetime. So if evolution had been a bit slower, maybe Earth would never have developed intelligent life. I mean, does that make you think that intelligence could be maybe rare in the universe? Uh, Yes, and indeed, uh, physicist Brandon Carter actually once used this particular argument on the, you know, putting it more accurately with real probabilities and so on, to actually show that intelligent life may be just so exceedingly rare that, in fact, we may be, for all practical purposes, alone in our own galaxy. I I once wrote some article that showed that You know, there are some ways in which maybe the time to develop a complex life on Earth could be somehow related to the evolution of our sun. Uh, And if that is the case, then these two timescales are not really independent, and that would make that argument not so strong. So I'm personally not that convinced that we we have to be extraordinarily rare, but, uh, you know, we could be quite rare. So it could be that we're just very lucky that our existence is in a special time. I mean, that uh, it's kind of non-Copernican in a way. I mean, we're special, at least in time. Well, yeah, it is anti-Copernican, and this is the part of it which I, which I really don't like, because the Copernican principle has only become stronger and stronger. I mean, Copernicus showed us for the first time that uh, we are nothing special in our own solar system, Since then, you know, our physical, at least, location in space has become less and less significant in in the sense that, you know, our solar system is not located at the center of our own galaxy. There are uh, 200 billion galaxies like our own galaxy. Even the stuff we're made of, protons and neutrons and so on, is only about 4% of all the energy of the universe. So the Copernican principle, you know, basically saying we're nothing special, uh, has only been strengthened uh, with research. So to suddenly come and say, well, actually, we are special in in other ways, is a little bit pushing it, in my opinion. Mario, one of the biggest science discoveries of the last dozen years has been the fact that the universe is now growing faster and faster, thanks to dark energy, whatever that is. But why now? How come the first time we're able to measure dark energy— we're just at this moment of acceleration. I mean, it's sort of like looking at the accelerated pedal in your car and someone just then steps on it. I completely agree with you. This is actually a question to which we don't know the answer. Basically, you know, you look at what happened with the universe and you see that the density of matter in the universe had to go down, down, down all the time as the universe was expanding, while the density of this dark energy, which we think may be associated with the energy of empty space, stayed constant. And just at the time when the density of matter dipped below the density of this empty space energy, this is when we first measure it, while our universe is going to spend you know, most of its time at other times. So it is really quite bizarre, and this why now question is puzzling many cosmologists. You you don't think that it could be just the fault of our observations that somehow, because we've looked at this problem now, we we found something that isn't actually real? I mean, could dark energy be a uh, just some sort of chimera, some something not real? I don't think that the acceleration is not real. I think that there is sufficient evidence now that the expansion of our universe is accelerating. Uh, whether or not it is accelerating because of dark energy or simply because we have to change our theory of gravity, you know, and not use Einstein's general relativity, we may need a new theory. 
that, I think, is certainly not known and will surely be investigated in the coming years and decades. But the fact that the expansion is accelerating seems, I would say, essentially without doubt. All right. Well, Mario, let's just consider for a moment the long-term future of the universe. It seems that it's likely to keep expanding forever. I mean, not just for a long time, but forever. So here's the story of the universe. It begins with a big bang. There may be, uh, I don't know, a trillion years of stars, planets, astronomers, and then an infinite amount of time in which nothing really happens. I mean, a big flash, then endless nothingness. Somehow, that just doesn't seem very satisfying. Uh, it maybe isn't satisfying if you think that all of this had to have some sort of a purpose. But if somehow you, you don't think, you know, that the laws of physics require a purpose to them, then, you know, if that's what they predict, then that's what will happen. And you're absolutely right. I mean, if the expansion will continue with the acceleration that, uh, you know, we now observe and how we think that might continue to evolve, then... 100 billion years from now, if there are still people in the Milky Way galaxy, they will actually not be able to see a single other galaxy. They will all be completely out of view for the inhabitants of such a universe. Eventually, in fact, particle physics theories predict that even protons that were made of should decay. And so at the end, you know, this will be just... uh, a universe filled with radiation that will just cool off. It will be a a very cold death. Maybe it sounds sad, but uh, maybe that's what happened. (laughs) Well, finally, Mario, then, do you feel at least grateful for the fact that we seem to have come into the universe at just the right time? We've arrived just in time for the party. I'll tell you what I do feel very, very grateful about. And that is, you know, that in spite of the fact that we are nothing special and our time is probably nothing very, very special. It is still the case that, you know, we have discovered all those things. So in some sense, you know, our universe expanded at the same rate that our knowledge expanded, because, you know, before Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe is expanding, people didn't know that the universe was expanding and so on. So in that sense, at least, we humans are very central to all of this, because it is our knowledge that is expanding together with this universe. Mario Livio, always a pleasure to talk with you. My pleasure. Mario Livio is an astrophysicist at the Space Telescope Science Institute. Okay, Seth, there's the Balinese restaurant right next to the Nepalese Italian Fusion Cafe, which is just what my girlfriend said. Yeah, well, if you just said that, I would have known right where to look. Hmm, it looks kind of deserted. Let's take a closer look. Meanwhile, we know where we are in the show, and that's at the end. And those who never desert us are Gary, Meriwether, Lewis, Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. And we're happy to find support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute. Okay, the restaurant does look dark. Wait, there's a sign on the door? And it says, come see us at our new location at 1450 Euclid Street. Wait a minute. That's right around here, isn't it? Euclid, Euclid, but where? You know what? I'm not even going to say it. Okay, I'm going to say it. Did you bring a map? Uh, Nepalese-Italian fusion, anyone? Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.